ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Nalman. Joining me is Rabbi Barry Chester, Rabbi Jeremy Kamenowski. Shalom, everyone. It's great to see you all. We're dedicating this edition to the anniversary of Rabbi Barry Chesler and Rabbi Patrick Cap- Carol Chesler. Mazel Tov, it's 31 years. Tell us something special. Mazel Tov. 31 years ago, we were married in B'nai Amuna Congregation in St. Louis, and the reception was in a hotel in downtown St. Louis. And of course... It was actually by the airport. <laughs> everyone is... Uh, comes to the, the wedding and everyone takes off, including the person who was supposed to drive us to the reception. So the cantor knocks on the door where we're doing Yichud and says, you need a ride? And of course we said, no, someone's going to take us. He said, they left already. And then we left the talus, which I had used for the chuppah up in the shul, and we left without that as well. Well... And you're still married, which is a great We're thing. still married. We had adventures on our honeymoon. It was Rabbi Bernie Lipnick of St. Louis, who was there for over 40 years. And one of the things that struck me, I think I met him twice before we got married, and yet he was able to find something in what I had said to make it very personal. So I was quite well, struck by that. That's the art, by the way, Barry. That's, you know, us pulpit rabbis. We do that. Right. Well, I was only a rabbinical student, so I, I didn't quite have the art yet. Well, we, you know, just, you know, we, we, we can give you a lesson or two. Anyway, speaking of lessons, there's a great lesson. <laughs> a, I'll just say real quick on this one, that there's a, there's a guy in my show, his father was a, was a pulpit rabbi many years in Queens, and, and he, he said to a younger, I think actually it was his son-in-law, he's a, he was, a, was a rabbi, and uh, he says, I, I have to... I have a funeral this week. He says, well, what's the Parsha? He says, Mishpatim. He said, you can bury a whole city on Mishpatim. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Everything can be read through the Parsha. And this one is no exception. Shlach Lecha, an important Parsha. I think a turning point in the story in Bamidbar, real turning point. Last week really set us up with all of the frustration, the complaining. And it seems that the, the people are ripe for this Rupture. I'm going to call this a rupture in, in, in the whole relationship because it's really the turning point. What's the, the setting of this parsha? I'm going to take the lead here. The setting of this parsha. Send out people. Send out these men to scout the land and see what's in the land. And of course, the the uh, the charge to uh, the the spies and they all have their names. Uritem et aretz mahi ve'et ha'am ha'yoshev aleha. See the land, what it is, and see the people dwelling on it. Hechazaku harafeh. If they're strong or weak, hama'at hu imrav. If it is a large population or a small population, umaha'aretz asher hu yoshev ba ha'tovahi imra. Is it a good land? Is it a bad land? What are the cities, etc., etc.? And I love the Rashi comment that says there's there's a, 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 the land produces a people and we get a sense of what kind of character of people you become from the land that you live on. I, I think that that is true given the fact that I come from a different land 
than the two of you. I am a Lake and River person, and you are Americans. What do you want? <laughs> Our ancestors, no doubt, came from the same places in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I say that this is a, a, a rupture here because the, the report comes back and it's bad. And Barry, I want you to take, take, take the story from here. Well, so the spies go, they see the land, they see the bounty of the fruit, and they take samples of the fruit. The, some of it is too heavy for one person to carry, and they come back with a, a terrible report. So one of the great lines is that they tell the people that we appeared as grasshoppers in our own eyes, and in the eyes of the inhabitants with whom they did not interact. I remember many years ago, one of my teachers at Spurtis College of Judaica, Rabbi Martin Goldman saying that this was a great example of psychological projection. And that was really what the failure of the spies were. It wasn't that they gave a bad report because that could have been an honest report. What was bad in their report was when they projected their own lack of worth onto the natives and said that the natives saw them as being unworthy when they had no reason to see them as anything. I think that this is exactly on point. And and the verse that brings this home to me is in the course of their report, um, they say, uh, We went where you sent us. And indeed, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Back since the burning bush, these, this people has been talking about the land full of milk and honey. This is, this is the dream. This is the destiny. And they have reached the affirmation that that is true. And then say, Ephes, ki az ha'am ha'yoshev ba'aretz. Ephes, in contemporary Hebrew, it means, you know, zero. But in biblical Hebrew, it means, but don't think about that. That doesn't matter. This is impossible. And at that moment, to me, the, the story shifts. You know, Ramban says, exactly as you said a minute ago, it's not, at this point, it's not yet a false report. It's not debat ha'aretz for a few more verses. It's not slander against the land yet. It's the honest report. Well, what are they supposed to do? Lie? Um, if, if the Amalekites are there and they're strong, and, and if the Bnei Anak are there and they're strong, that's what Moses asked. Are there many? Are there small? Are they, are they in open camps? Are they in walled cities? They're reporting the truth. But it's when they say that this destiny of a land of milk and honey, Ephes, it's not worth it. It's not possible. And, and to me, the betrayal of the destiny, and the one thing that God can always be counted on to be mad about in the book of Bamidbar is when somebody says, I wish we were still in Egypt. It's when they, when they make that move that downhill. So what you're saying is, and, and I'm going to say this, they're crushing the dream. The, the, the harm that they do is an emotional harm. Uh, it's an intellectual and spiritual harm. And what I want to propose to you for, for your rebuttal or debate or, or analysis is that in presenting this uh, report, uh, these 10 spies who, who seem to be some kind of conspiracy at this point, um, they are met with a weak leadership, a weak leadership team, Moses, Aaron, uh, Joshua, and Kalev. Joshua and Kalev, we recall, are the two spies that are delivering more optimistic response. I, I'm going to submit to you that they fail. All of them fail. 
and that they are, they, they are simply no match uh, for what, what becomes public opinion. It's, it, it is the crisis. It's a crisis of leadership. I don't know how you react to that. Well, tell us a little bit about why you think, I mean, obviously they fail in the sense that they're condemned to 40 years in the desert, but tell us a little bit about the, the specific failings of okay. these folks as leaders. Well, I'm reading very closely, okay? They, you, you quoted Ephes Kiaz, and then the next verse they say, Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Amalekites, that's a trauma. That's a trigger, okay? Mm-hmm. You say Amalek, you say, and it's like saying Nazis, okay? There are Nazis over there. Amalekites live there. Forget also the Achiti Ayivusi Ayemori Yoshev Bahar, another bunch of Amenis, but there's Amalekites there. Hakanani Yoshev Alayam, pagans feh on them. And what does Kalev do? By Yahas Kalev Etam, El Moshe. All he does is say, shh. Bayahas means, no, 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 quiet, quiet, everyone, everyone, I have something to say. He says, we can do it, we can do it. And, and no program, no clear view, no concrete thinking, no visual imagery. They have given mythologized views of dragons. There are evil people there. There are Nazis there. And he's got, no, we can do it. You know, well, why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you say that? Why wouldn't you say that? Just as you said a minute ago, that that the that the bad spies, the ten bad spies, killed the dream. Why wouldn't we say that an essential component of leadership is restoring the dream? So, what does he do here? Tell him about the dream. By the way, this is this is an amazing thing. Uh, um, there's a uh, um, is a preview. Martin Luther King's 1963 dream speech, he gives a speech in, in Detroit, and it's like a first draft, and it's not quite right, going yeah. so well, and he's kind of dying out there. And you can hear on the tape, Mahalia Jackson says, tell him about the dream, Martin. Oh. And then he goes, then he goes. So maybe Kalev is, I have a dream. Yachol Nuchala, we can, we can do this. No. If he had a dream, if he, if he, he would say, he would, it's not only to say we can do this, it's we are able to muster ourselves into an army. It's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take organization, training, and, and all that. But this is what's involved. I have a program. I have a plan. This is, plan, the, this is the, so, the Kalev plan. And we can do it. We can, we're going to, it's going to take us further. We're going to have casualties. We're going to, but, and all he says, no, we can do it. We can do it. Bah, 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 bah. No question. Failure. You think is whether or not it's too late at that point that already they've crossed Agreed. the Rubicon, as it were. Um, only they're not going to be met with success; they're going to be crushed. That the people are not able to be rehabilitated at this point, and so Kalev does what the only thing he can do, because if we go back again to the calling the charge at the beginning of the Parsha, the way the Torah describes it with my apologies to Ramban, the far greater scholar than I will ever be. It seems clear that God is commanding them to go into the land. And again, the question is when he says, this is what you're supposed to look for. What's the tone? It is, I think that whatever you find, you need to figure out a way to deal with it. You could find this, you could find that, but we can be successful. And the people, the, the spies go in, and whatever they find, they only see as failure. They weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for this eventuality. 
So you wanted them to, so think that through for a moment though. What would have prepared them? And, you know, again, we read the Torah as if everything's unfolding day by day when we know it's a story after the fact. Yes. So what part of the story, how much time are you going to give to this? You know, excuse me. I'm, I'm very passionate about this. The three of us, we are, we are here because of camp. Okay. And, and, Every single time we planned a program, if it was outdoors, we had contingency plans. If we did a Tisha B'Av thing, if we did a Chinuch thing, it was always, what happens if it rains? What happens if, if, okay? We always thought through contingencies. It's a basic thing of leadership. Look, two of us, Jeremy and I, we're, we're thinking about the high holidays now, okay? I mean, we're, we're thinking contingencies left, right, and center. What happens if? What happens if there's a second peak? What happens if we can't do this? What happens, you know, that's what leadership is about. Leadership is a looking ahead of things and finding contingencies. And what Kalev and Yoshua do not do is look ahead to the possibility that they're going to have everything that they, are, they, they want, the whole dream undermined. They could, you're saying they couldn't expect that. I'm saying if they, were, if they were slightly more experienced as leaders, they would have expected it. An experienced leader does that. Wait, one more time. One more second. And Moses fails here also. Because I, the, the trajectory of Moses' life, don't forget, this is year three in the, in the wandering. By year 40, he's a great leader. By year three, he's still learning all of it. Well, does God fail also? Of course God fails. <laughs> well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> At least one of the reasons this is unfair is is I mean it's not it's obviously not not totally unfair because because in fact it is a that they're at the they're at the edge of their destiny and they are co- compelled to spend forty years wandering, but you know I'm just going to think back to another episode we're talking about how how charged the experience with Amalek is so let's think back to to Exodus chapter fourteen where Joshua plays a critical role as a battle leader and Moshe's job is to go on top of the mountain and inspire by his presence and the touchdown signal. Yeah. Okay? Moses lifts his arms and Vigavar Yisrael, and he lowers his arm Vigavar Amalek. And we tend to read that as perhaps some sort of level of magic trick, but we tend to read it as, and the rabbis read it as, the direction to focus on Avihem Shabbat Shemayim, right? The, 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 the direction... To the, the direction to have their kavana oriented towards heaven. And I think that there is a way in that story uh, that, the, that the deep theme is about one's spiritual orientation. And I think that would be a fair thing to say here, too. Joshua could say, even though, by the way, in the complications of the text itself, uh, Kalev is really the actor and Joshua is, is, is kind of a side character, but who's kind of tagged along with Kalev's bravery. But Given, given his, his fight with Amalek a, a year or two before, it might be totally reasonable for them to say, we need somebody who's going to give the touchdown signal and, and tell everybody how to have faith. So the other point that we might add is that of all the people that are mentioned, Yehoshua is the only one with military yes. experience, and he's the one who says that we can be successful. So what struck me while you were talking, Elliot, my mind often wanders when you talk. I apologize. <laughs> Many right. congregants have the same experience. <laughs> it's 1948. Yeah. You can imagine being with some of the Israeli officers trying to figure out, without a visible sign from God, how they're supposed to proceed. 
And, you know, there were fierce battles over what to do about Jerusalem, whether they should try to take it or preserve men and munitions for safer battles. So it's a real human dilemma that I, I, I think, I mean, on the first hearing, it seems that you're a little, a little harsh. I, I feel very harsh on this because, because I, I, you know, we're entitled to get a little, a little testy about the, we have to. You know, our ancestors. But, but I, I see almost every, I, you know, the fact, the, the fact that the spies have such a romantic, such a, a colorful representation of the land tells me they worked on it. This doesn't come, you don't, you don't create this imagery out of thin air. You're working on it and, and you're giving a speech, okay? Now, we make speeches all the time. We know that you really got to think through this and to, to, to captivate emotionally the people. They're, what they're doing is they're manipulating the people to a negative, a negative opinion. That's not hard to do. Okay, the, the, the much more difficult task is to, to say over a challenge, yes, we can do this. And here, again, what is symbolic of the failure? I say, they fall on their face. They, they, they resort to a gesture. Falling on your face means nothing. It's an empty gesture. I mean, at the most, you can give it some piety. Okay, so they're, they want to pray. So I'd like to disagree. I'd like to offer a different understanding. They fall on their face because they need the immediate help of God. Hey, come on. They fall on their face because they don't know what to do. They, they, they're, they're speechless. Well, isn't that when you need the help of God, when you don't know what to do? Exactly. Except if you're a leader, you should have thought this through. Okay, I'm they sorry. Their faces with Korach too. They fall on their faces with Korach, too. And, that, and then it's the failure. And with the rock. Next week. Leave it for next week. The second thing is, it says, Yoshua They do Kriya. Okay, excuse me. Sorry. I have stood with people doing Kriya. You do Kriya, of course, in the moment of, of that. Uh, it's, it's an irreplaceable moment of catharsis, emotional despair, and everything. Okay? We know how valuable it is. But is that what's called for now? Is the, are, are we calling for a symbolic gesture of mourning? Or are we, are we saying to him, get off, you're behind, get up there and motivate the people. You have a job I'm, to do. I'm finding this somewhat surprising, at least partly because while I know you to be a practical person, I also know you to be a spiritual and poetic person yes. who can respond to the Torah on those levels. And the spirituality of the, of the story, both on the part of the the, the somewhat cowardly, admittedly cowardly spies and faithless spies emerges from that line about the grasshoppers, right? Because it is a matter of their own inability to imagine success. Because, as we see, you know, many people say, and it's, it's a little bit of cliche, but it's also like, like uh, all cliches, 75% true. Um, uh, they're still, the, the reason that the generation has to die out is that they've still got the slave mentality and they're not ready for the audacious possibilities that they're going to succeed. And so, when, when you say that the that spies have planned out the manipulative quality of their speech, I, I'm not going to disagree with that, but it comes from an acute, I mean, I think an acutely interesting passage in which they say the destiny that we have been talking about for generations is at hand. 
I'm going to run away now. I can't, I can't confront this. Um, I think this is what makes this psychologically really interesting passage. And Kalev and Joshua, um, and, and maybe in a minute if we get to this, Moshe, I, I, think, I think they appreciate the, what, what are you doing? You know, I, I would translate Vayas Kalev, by the way, not as Kalev says, Shashtel, but shut up! Up, you know, <laughs> would you shut up? <laughs> he's, he's forceful to me. No, I think I disagree again. I think there's a there's a time for poetry and a time for leadership. Okay, and the time there's no there's no there's no time for poetry here. But there also has to be a buy-in from the lead. You know what the people remind me of here? They never make the turn, right? Why do they keep saying they want to go back to Egypt? because that's where the heart is. They never make this turn to seize the day, or as Jeremy put it so nicely, to confront their destiny. They're like the people, they swim halfway across the ocean and then decide they're too tired, so they're gonna swim back. Swim back the other half. You're, you're, you're absolutely right and, and, and in, in all these respects, but, but what is, what's playing here is fear, fear. I, you know, of you course it's fear, play. but then, so why does God wanna destroy them? So God, I mean, I don't want to say it also, but God helps too, you know. But what's so interesting to me is, so what's the argument not to destroy them? What the will argument, the, the non-Jews think? Exactly. But this works now, right? When the spies come back and say, this is what the non-Jews think, we're grasshoppers, that's no good. But now, God, you can appeal to God by saying, this is what the non-Jews will think, you're a wimp. No, I think... Moshe, Moshe wants to retain, look, Moshe, not, Moshe fails with the people. He doesn't fail with God. Moshe's, Moshe has much more insight into it, intuition with God than he has with the people. The people need to be led here, and they're not. The people crater at one mention of Amalekites, one mention of Anakites. That shouldn't have happened. And I'm, so I, I, I'm taking a, you know, a little bit of a license saying that, that says that the counter- argument was not prepared the counter plan was not made the people fail and the failure of leadership can have catastrophic consequences and that's exactly what we see here because the initial plan was you go in i love what you said before jeremy they had a taste of the land they they were able to see it they these were the only people that that got to be in the dream and they they killed it they imagine it's like herzl saying we're going to go, we're going to go. And then all the people said, nah, you can't do this, you can't do this. And what made that happen? What made it, I mean, I think Herzl, one of the most underappreciated. What made that happen were the Kalev's and Yehoshua's who went, not the other 10 who didn't. No. What made, it happen, what made it happen was Herzl was a genius in public relations. Herzl was a genius in organization and diplomacy. Without Herzl, there would be no... I agree with you, but on the other hand, he moves so few people. Not true, not true. Yeah, this, it's, it's interesting, by the way, I just want to make the observation that um, as is completely, you know, uh, it, it, it's Zelmer Darshani that just begs to be expounded this way, uh, the, wanting to read this Parsha in a Zionistic way, it just it just begs for a certain kind of reading, um, because especially when you think about 
uh, you know, you think about the state of Israel in 1948, as Barry said, or, or 1967, or in 1973, in various times. But I really think in the early Zionist period, when there was every reason in the world to think that they could not succeed, and they did succeed, and, and you know, Ben-Gurion has that great line that, a, you know, a Jew who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist, yeah. um, that, that, that this story is in fact. But I also have to say that from the a perspective of a 2020 Zionist, um, uh, you know, I, I find myself uh, recoiling from the, we will do it, we will impose our will, and it does, and nothing else matters kind of Zionism that one sometimes hears uh, nowadays, especially especially about uh, you know the talk of annexation and whatnot. So, I, I as a as a as a somewhat left of center Zionist, see the narrative in this one as powerful, beautiful, inspiring, and got it, it containing the seeds of its own problematic reinterpretations as well. So, Elliot, I have a question for you, and and the question is, what? So you blame the leaders, yes, and you make that clear why. But is it really a failure of the leadership or was it doomed with the let? Meaning, let's say that the, we read a different Torah and Moshe, Kalev, and Yoshua, and Aaron did what you said that they should do. That in and of itself doesn't guarantee success either. No. So the question is, you're saying obviously it would raise, it would increase the likelihood but would it actually have generated success? Would, it, would they have actually generated success if they would have gone through, if they would have, you know, obviously we, you know, uh, we don't know. That's hypothetical. Well, but I, it's hypothetical, but I think you have to at least have an inkling which way it goes, because if it's going to go that nothing would have worked, then I don't know that this is a failure of leadership. Maybe it's actually realism. You know, in, in, in Bamidbar, the theme is um, trust God, God will come through for you, whether it's food or water or battle. And why do the Ma'apilim fail? Because God has let them fail. So I, I guess to Barry's question, you know, speaking now about the text and its own concerns, if, if Moshe, Aaron, had, Kalev, and Yoshua had behaved differently, would the people have been ready? I guess I have to say that from the perspective of the book of Bamidbar, if the people had been ready, God would have helped them succeed. That would have, that would have been it. So this is a problem for me that we keep coming back to, is that we have an invisible God whose will is not made known to everyone so clearly. And we tend, because we read about God in the book, everything's black and white. And so God speaks, and it must be the message is heard clearly. And, you know, we have the alternate story in Devarim, um, which Ramban bridges the two. And that is that Moshe sent the spies. Because it's not always clear what God wants from us and how we're supposed to behave. And this is an attempt in some way, I think, to address the fact that our ancestors sensed God's presence, but it didn't carry them through. Look, I, I would say, obviously, it's a much more interesting story to, to see failure. Failure failure is always much more interesting than success. It's a story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, want to, I want to say one thing about Moshe's, you know, the, the success or failure of Moshe as a leader. In this, this next little element, I think, is extraordinary. Um, 
Moshe, you know, God says, as God does from time to time in these stories, that's it, that's it, that's it. I've had it with these people. I'm done with them. I'm going to kill them and start all over again with you. And it's not surprising because back in Bereshit, that's what happens, right? God, God keeps getting the right people and sloughing off the bad people and picking the right people. And so Moshe answers, as Moshe does each time, no dice. Uh, I'm here to serve these people. In the Midrash, uh, you know, a thousand, in the Midrash, Moshe says, a thousand Moshe's are not worth one fingernail of, of this people. And what's amazing about this is, I mean, among them, uh, th- that Mesirut Nefesh, that commitment, that um, just commitment, whatever, he's, he's, going, he's going down with the ship. But in this case, what, it, what is fabulous about it is, that by making that decision, Moshe condemns himself to 40 years in the desert. If Moshe had said to God, okay, let's start again and lead me to the promised land, he probably would have arrived. But instead, if he's going to stick with this people, this people is going to have to bear 40 years in the desert. So Moshe's love and commitment to the people is such that he's willing to uh, end his own life in exile. And to me, um, that's just just extraordinary. Sometimes there are sometimes political leaders in in the world who seem to think that the people are there to serve them, but Moshe is there to serve the people. Ki eved ne'eman karatzalo, he's faithful servant. So, so I would say that Moshe's interaction with God is probably much more productive than it is with the people, and that. And then much of Bamidbar is the biography of Moshe, and that we are we are watching in real time the development of a leader. He has strengths with God. He is not particularly strong at this point with the people, but he he does, and I will agree with you, Jeremy. He does understand what this is about now. He understands that it's going to take much longer. I mean, he, and by I think you know what you said. I think it was quite beautiful. He understands by by this kind of surrender that, that he's surrendering his own uh, fate into, uh, into a, an undetermined length of exile. I mean, of course, by the end of the Parsha, it's known that it's going to be 40 years, you know, and that, and that he's probably saying, oh, God, I, have to, I have to be with him for 40 years. What am I going to do? <laughs> oh my God, we have so much more to talk about. Two seconds on gathering wood. The Shabbat, the Sabbath violator. Shabbos! He gathered. Well, you hit it because you because you said you said the great thing about the the thread of the Ten Commandments. Through Indeed, the, this is the fourth commandment, fourth book of the Bible. Violation. He is sentenced. He, it's a covenantal capital crime to collect wood on Shabbos. Not because collecting wood on Shabbos is is bad in its own way, but because he's undermining the whole covenantal relationship. The people. So how does that work? Right, it's a not word mikoshesh. Yeah. Right, it's not lasof or haosef. I guess we would say or hamasef. Yeah. So, how does it, what's the connection between mikoshesh and the covenant? The, he's oh, Shabbos. 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 Shabbos is the that the 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 Torah wants to um, not only tell you here are the rules; it wants to instantiate violations of the rules. So you have you have. What what are you, what are, what are all the things you have you have murder you have adultery you know you have you have blasphemy and idolatry and, <laughs> idolatry and the, so 
the honoring parents, is Ben Sora Amor. David Noel Friedman in his book, The Unity of the Hebrew Bible, says that if you trace each book, you see a, a, a violation. So in the case of the Ben Sora Amor, it's not an actuality, it's a theoretical violation. One last thing, Tzitzit. Parshan Tzitzit, easiest mafter for every bar mitzvah boy. No? Bar mitzvah girl, right? You know, the Bar Albanese Ramar Dalai Masulam Tzitzit, whether it's Tzitzit, why? Important. Techelet is the answer, is that, uh, that you know, in, in ancient societies, you know, do people are, quote, to the purple born or wearing the royal blue. Uh, every every king, and, and speaking of next week's Barsha, Karach wants to come out and dress like the king all in blue. But when there was access to the, the biblical, you know, deep blue or purple or whatever, whatever it was back in ancient times, every single person had one string of techelet on their garment, Everybody was, we're all b'nei malachim. We're all, we are all royal in our own way. And so everybody should have a little bit. And, and in our own century, well, the last century and now into this one, uh, it's become increasingly available. So uh, it's kind of expensive. So I, I only put it on my, my big talisman, but uh, I love having the blue threads on my talis. Right. But the CC, I think the message here is that it's a symbol, right? It's not actually... The tzitzit themselves is what the tzitzit come to represent, and that you're supposed to look at them, you're supposed to remember the mitzvot, and you're supposed to remember the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. It could have been anything, right? It didn't have to be strings with the halo. But I actually maybe maybe disagree a little bit, which is to say that, uh, okay, in the culture of the ancient Near East, the fringe of your garment was really important because that's where the person met the world and people did things. They, of course they were illiterate. So they had, they had certain elaborate seals on their, on their garments, like we see from Judah and Tamar. Um, and so to make the edge of your garment, yes, it is a symbol, but to make the edge of your garment, the symbol um, is, is to say something about how you interact with the world. And, and seats, you know, seats does mean like, like blossom or flower and there's, we do a lot with that. It's important. We have the episode of Saul, Saul and David, the, the tearing of the, the, the yeah. hem of the garment also. And of course, you know, for you us... You don't like Kriyat Begadim, though. No, I know. But we have uh, the wearing of the, the talit. I think um, it's one of the great, the great spiritual moments as a Jew enters into prayer. I mean, putting on a talit for all of us, I think, uh, gives us the feeling of being wrapped up in, in mitzvot, wrapped up in God's presence, which, of course, the study of Torah also does, and that's what we've done here uh, with a little bit of uh, a little bit of excitement too. But uh, we've come to our, our our end of our time here. I'm just going to say that COVID is bad, but being able to transfer Parsha talk from a few weeks in the summer to a weekly activity a, a small benefit of the COVID crisis. Agreed. Agreed. And now we're coming up to Camp Parshiot. Yeah. yeah. Well, All right. Guys. We're going to say Shabbat Shalom. Give everyone a bracha. It's great to see you all. Shabbat Shalom. Barry Chesser, Jeremy Keller, Rabbis, and Parsha Talk. Shabbat Shalom.
לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מרגישים קיץ באוויר. רדיו כל רמה 102.3 FM